0: For a long time, I assumed that being Vietnamese meant that I knew what that war was about. One thing. Freedom. The truth is that we didn't talk about the technical details of the war itself while I was growing up. I didn't really know the differences among the South Vietnamese, the United States, and the communists, and the nuanced causes that they were all fighting for. My high school history books basically glossed over the conflict. And my mom and dad, they didn't discuss or dwell on the past. And now I'm realizing that maybe it's not that my parents and their generation did not want to talk about the war with us. There was just too much pain and trauma to bring it up. They were on the losing side of this conflict. They had lost their country. Most accounts of the Vietnam War have been defined by white men from the Western world. And it's not uncommon for forums on the Vietnam War to completely exclude Vietnamese perspectives. I'd argue the Vietnamese, who suffered more than anyone in this war, were grossly dehumanized during and after the conflict. In the Oscar-winning 1974 documentary, Hearts and Minds, General William Westmoreland shares his views on Vietnamese people.
1: Well, the Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Life is plentiful, life is cheap in the Orient. Life is, uh, is not important.
0: But now, there's a new documentary that's challenging the typical narrative of the Vietnam War. Filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick have spent the last decade working on a comprehensive account of the Vietnam War. And I've seen it, all 18 hours. It's eye-opening, provocative, and powerful. It was franticide. You can say, well, but but they are communists. Okay,
2: they're communists. They are the worst Vietnamese in the entire world. We were the good Vietnamese. But let's face, Vietnamese killing Vietnamese. How, how do you deny that? If you
1: don't call that franticide, what do you call that?
0: I'll speak with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick in a moment. I'm Tantan, and you're listening to Second Wave, an American story that begins in Vietnam. Support for Second Wave comes from Fisher Plumbing family of companies committed to their communities for over 40 years by supporting youth sports programs, charities for the disadvantaged, and water conservation. Fisher Plumbing offers plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and router services. More at fisherplumbing.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R plumbing.com. The story of the Vietnam War has been told many times before, through books and documentaries and Hollywood movies.
2: We're gonna lose this war. Come on. You really
1: think so? Us? We've been kicking other people's asses for so long, I figure it's time we got ours kicked.
0: Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. What made you two go, we have to make a film about this war?
2: Because Americans lost or failed to do what they set out to do, they've been very hesitant to explore it in depth and so we are imprisoned by conventional wisdom about it that is so superficial and so lacking in dimension and nearly all the things you mention are are just american centric and they just tell our perspective as if we're the only people on earth and anybody we're fighting is reduced to kind of a one dimensional cipher
0: the majority of the people that you interviewed offered first-hand accounts of the war.
2: I was assigned a listing post at Kan Tien in the fall.
1: That was like getting a death sentence at a trial, because that's just three Marines out there with a radio. And that, that's the
2: scariest thing I did. You're listening for the enemy. They call you on the radio every hour. Don't up three bravo, don't up three bravo.
0: You left out a lot of historians and a lot of scholars. So why was it important to tell the story in this way with people who actually lived through the experience of the Vietnam War?
2: What happens is, is that war inevitably gets abstract and gets abstracted once you've cleared the lifespan of the veterans. But when you have a moment where they still are alive, it does not need to be cluttered by people who don't know what it was like to be there.
0: One of the things about this film that makes it a little different from previous films about World War II and the Civil War is there's so much footage. And I mean, this was the first televised war. And it's also very graphic.
1: The day's operation burned down 150 houses, wounded three women, killed one baby, wounded one Marine and netted these four prisoners.
0: You know, my parents and my grandparents lived in the countryside. So in a lot of ways, when I saw that, Mm. it really felt like I'm seeing my family members, you know, Mm. like I am seeing what they went through and what they lived Mm. through and survived. And um, it's so visceral. And I'm wondering when you were deciding, because you had so much footage to pull from for this film, was it a conscious decision to show the real effects of war
2: always our attempt was to calibrate the extent to what we show. We have an obligation to show the cruelty of it. And at the same time, we're not interested in sending any viewer away. Um, We're asking you to stay. And we've we we pledge to you that we have spent 10 years calibrating those images so that there's some tough stuff. But there's rest from that. And there's the possibility to sort of not
3: use it gratuitously. One of the, you know, things that struck us again and again. Sometimes you're thinking when you're watching some of this incredibly disturbing graphic material or battle going on is, you know, who took that picture?
1: I remember he was wearing a checked shirt. And the photographer had come up very close and had pressed his shutter just as the officer pulled his trigger. So camera and gun went off together, and you could see the man's head bulging at the side where the bullet was about to come out.
3: I think several hundred photographers and journalists were killed trying to get the story of this war from all over the world. And um, we sort of pause and think about our gratitude to them, not just us as filmmakers, but, you know, us as human beings on this planet because they took tremendous risks so that those images could exist, even if some of them we can't show. You know, someone had to be there with a camera and I think it does, it seemed to us over and over again that we wouldn't understand this if we didn't have these images. Words on a page help us to imagine it, but when you see it, you can't unsee it. And um, we're grateful that this material exists even if some of it was just too much for us to show. So I
0: um, am a child of South Vietnamese refugees mm-hmm. with a very politically active anti-communist, you know, father. Right. He's kind of softened over the years, but I did grow up with this narrative that we were mm-hmm. the good guys, the communists were the bad guys. So in a lot of ways, watching this, this was the first time that I could see and hear, you know, mm-hmm. from the North Vietnamese, from the Viet Cong, and mm-hmm. that was really complicated because it just it's again it's it's forcing you to question the history and what you know and what your parents have taught you Mm -hmm. and I'm curious in the interviews you know with the North Vietnamese versus the South Vietnamese Mm -hmm. what did you hear from them that was surprising I mean in terms of what was similar what was totally off and totally different
2: more important is what's similar as we retreat from a defeat we tend to then maintain out of you know pretty obvious reasons, the sense of them being other and bad. And if you then sort of insist that we go in and ask them the same kind of personal questions about war that we asked everybody else, then all of a sudden you begin to realize it. And there's an important person in our film, Zwang Von Mai, who was born to a a family in in Hanoi. My father was very happy. we such a small and poor country and the Americans uh, have decided to come in to save us, not only with their money, their resources, but even with their own lives. Yet she had a sister and other relatives who join the Viet Minh and then later the Viet Cong or the NVA. And so she's really negotiating a complicated civil war within her family, and her parents are too. And and she offers that kind of perspective of how hardened we can get in our silos, but how easy it is to dissolve these things when we realize that perhaps that enemy, that one-dimensional enemy, might be someone in our own family.
3: No one has the market on being a good guy or a bad guy. You know, so there's good and bad in all of us as individuals and as countries and as armies and as military forces. We try to just keep an open mind and open heart listening to people tell their stories. And so there's inhumanity and humanity. There's massacres. There's atrocities. There's horrible things that are done. There's bravery. There's love. There's compassion. There's understanding. And no one has the market cornered on that. And I think one of the things that Mai says in the film toward the end, which is so moving, is that... You know, Vietnam itself as a country has not sort of found reconciliation.
2: The communists in their effort to erase vestiges of the former regime uh, have not allowed the South Vietnamese who lost their sons in the war to mourn to have their graves and to honor their memory. It caused a division that lasts to this day that the, the, the winners would not accommodate the losers in some way.
3: And there wasn't a place in their narrative for true understanding of the humanity of the, who they saw as the other. And so, you know, one of the places that we had the privilege of going was to the National Cemetery of South Vietnamese of the Arvin, their Arlington. And it's this place that's been neglected and padlocked and, you know, no one was allowed to go there for many years. Many cemeteries were destroyed. So there was no place to go to mourn, if you were on the losing side there. But going into that cemetery and seeing these sort of mounds of dirt where soldiers had been buried and their families hadn't been permitted to come, and lately it's been opened up a little bit. In well, the, contrast with the the North Vietnamese, North Vietnamese official, beautiful... right? Beautiful, exactly. Sort of temples to heroism, and there there's heroism on all sides. And so you know, just physically being able to go there with a the camera and showing what this place is in contrast, like Ken kind is of saying, to the cemeteries of the soldiers who who died for the the winning cause. I think it's just sort of a visual and psychic and spiritual representation or understanding for us as filmmakers to see, you know, we have to have room to recognize that many, many people died. There's tragedy for everybody. And we have, you know, I think our film tries to show that. We'll be right back.
0: I'm fascinated with Ho Chi Minh in your documentary because I always saw him as being a bad person. And there's a picture of my sister and I at an event with my dad, and we're standing in front of this poster that declares Ho Chi Minh surely was a criminal. But yet, in your film, he's reciting Thomas Jefferson.
1: With an OSS officer standing nearby, Ho Chi Minh began with the words of Thomas Jefferson. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: So in some ways, he seems to have this affinity for America. And that doesn't really fit the narrative that I grew up with. So through making this film, what did you learn about Ho Chi Minh that may challenge people's beliefs about him?
2: The Cold War necessitated that we make Ho Chi Minh an enemy because he was adhering to socialist and communist principles. But before that, in the brief moment of space before the Cold War sort of overtook the Second World War, we saw in him uh, just a nationalist seeking to liberate his country. But then on the other side is this notion that he comes down to us sort of unexamined as the one leader of North Vietnam, and it's just not the case. It's um, it's sort of shocking to sort of wake up and realize that, that your notion of the Vietnamese hierarchy is limited just to a kind of folk image of Ho Chi Minh, however positive or negative that, that image is. And we just wanted to complicate it and say, hey, look, there's a much more interesting story lying behind
0: it. Well, who's responsible for that? Was it Ho Chi Minh being just incredibly effective at building this persona? Was it the North Vietnamese? Was it America and the Cold War? He
2: he was the father of Vietnamese independence, so he's going to always be the figurehead to his people and to the rest of the world. But it's our own superficializing of things. You know, look, we now say George Washington had wooden teeth and never told a lie and threw a dollar coin over the Potomac all of which is not happening. He had porcelain teeth, everybody lies, and it's impossible to throw a coin that far. So if George Washington can be lost in the United States, then Ho Chi Minh can be lost in the world, and meaning that he can be reduced to the just, oh, he was the guy. And this is what we like about the, our work, is you have a chance to take somebody as interesting and as complicated as Ho Chi Minh and, and not sugarcoat it.
0: I'm curious too because, I mean, my existence in America is in large part because of that war and the chain Mm -hmm. of events that happened, you know, after that. And I I really wonder about intergenerational trauma. Even though Mm -hmm. I was born after the war, do you think that I'm impacted by the experiences and what my parents and my
3: family went through? I mean, without, you know, oversimplifying and being reductive, which we really hate to do, but I think in hearing from Vietnamese Americans of the one and a half and second generation like yourself and hearing people talk to us as we've been on the road talking about the film about how, you know, their parents went through something horrendous and unspeakably terrible and lost. People had to burn their photographs, had to leave everything behind, barely got out with their lives. Everybody knows someone who died, have family members on the other side. Just, it's trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And yet, you know, for all the reasons Ken is saying, just, you know, and to protect their children and wanting to move on and, and embrace what America has to offer, And the Vietnamese Americans have done incredibly well here because of that energy and resilience and forward-looking attitude.
1: Some 400,000 eventually made it to America, where they settled in nearly every state, industrious, entrepreneurial, more eager to take part in American political life and more likely to become American citizens than other immigrant groups from Asia. But for that first generation of Vietnamese Americans, memories of their homeland could never be erased. I'm very happy now, after almost 30 years,
3: that uh, I did make a good choice for me, for my family, although um, I wish I could go back to Vietnam to die there.
1: I want to say to my children that, well, I want to go back to Vietnam to live the rest of my life. But I have no such courage because I will hurt their feelings. And I don't want them to
3: misunderstand me. Um, you know, there's the trap door that doesn't get opened, and it does have resonances. And not to make an equivalence with children we've talked to who have parents survived the Holocaust and came here, and just said, "We're not going to talk about that. We're here in America now. We're going to live a good life." And they did, but the children carry that in ways that are indescribable,
2: seen and unseen. And right. this would be, uh, this could be extended, not, you know, out of the Vietnamese diaspora in the United States, which were familiar with, but to those children of American soldiers who came back. And, you know, there's a one-touching moment when a Marine that we interviewed, you know, describes a harrowing scene of being out on kind of night patrol. And he said...
1: And I'm scared of the dark still. I still got a nightlight. When my kids were growing up,
2: that's the first time they really found out that Daddy had been in a war when they said, well, why do we need to grow our nightlights? Daddy's still got one. And you begin to realize that there, is, there are generations and now grandchildren who are growing up inheriting almost like genetic material but in a different psychological way. But what we find and what we think to mitigate all of that is obviously to know it, to own it, yeah. to love it, to not blame it, uh, but also to tell the stories. And and part of telling the stories permits you to own it in a way that's more complicated and nuanced and, and maybe liberating from the tyranny of these hard and fast ideas about what happened.
0: I went through high school in the late 90s, and I barely learned about the war. Right. I mean, it was not really covered in textbooks. It, still, it was still, it. still too painful. And, um, and what I did learn was sort of a, a more or less whitewashed version That's of right. the war. And what are you hoping American audiences are going to learn about the Vietnamese experience you know, with the Vietnam War?
2: Well, you want to be liberated from the tyrannies of those sort of superficial things. So we hope that we can create a place, a space, where people can have these courageous conversations.
1: I think the Vietnam War drove a stake right into the heart of America.
0: The Vietnam War, um, the film clearly takes place during a time when America is incredibly divided.
1: It polarized the country as it had probably never been polarized since before the Civil War. And um, unfortunately, we've never moved really far away from that. And we never recovered.
0: I'm wondering what kind of parallels do you see to today?
2: Well, it's interesting. When we began the film in late 2006, history, as it always does, sort of feels like it's incredibly relevant mass demonstrations in cities across the country, uh, White House obsessed with leaks, uh, accusing the media of inventing things.
1: Absolutely. Your press is lying like drunken sailors every day. Uh, I, first thing I waked up this morning, was trying to figure out after seeing CBS, watching the networks, reading the morning papers, was how can we win, possibly win and survive as a nation and have to fight the press's lies
2: stolen documents, classified material dumped into the public sphere, accusations that a political campaign reached out to a foreign power, at the time of a national election, and these are only a handful of the things that's kind of ring true. But our job as filmmakers is not to kind of go, wow, see, you know, point a neon sign at it, but just keep our head down and, and call balls and strikes and not try, try to see if there is in any way our own preconceptions have it, polluted uh, it in any way and try to remove them as much as possible. So we just become rather ecumenical and say, here's what we've learned over the last 10 years, and and we're making it for everybody.
0: What have you learned um, from other Vietnamese Americans who've seen this or have seen snippets from it? What has their reaction been?
3: It's been really, really instructive to see this openness um, to let go of, as Ken was saying, the kind of oversimplified narratives of the war and just think about um, people. You know, one of the first experiences that we had showing some of the film to some Vietnamese Americans was a very early rough cut of just some scenes and a woman came up to us before the screening and she was in her I think early 60s late 50s she said you know my father was killed by the Viet Cong during the Tet Offensive and I said or, you know we said we're, we're terribly sorry and for your loss and you know hope you can keep an open mind and watch the clips and she came up afterwards and said thank you for showing me I never thought about anyone on the v- on the other side as a human being until today so you know, um, that's 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 all we need to hear, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I just have to say, I I recently came back from Vietnam, and my grandmother is ninety-two, and she's still alive. And she wow. and I, you know, I was prompted to just ask her about her experience, what it was like wow. to live under, you know, during the war. And um, I also brought a photo because oh, I wow. just this is this is my uncle who. Oh. Um, was killed in 1971 in the same village where Napalm Girl was from. Oh, my
3: goodness.
0: um, You know, and he's my father's best friend and brother, and this was in 1971 or 72. And I have to say, when I watched the film, I think the anger came from knowing that perhaps he would have lived if this thing had not continued to escalate. There were so many opportunities, you know, and so I think for a lot of Vietnamese Americans, we're going to see so much of our own family history and so much of ourselves, you know, in these stories. But what do we do with this history? You
3: know, um, looking at the pictures, it's heartbreaking because, you know, when you think about numbers of people killed, it's these big abstract numbers. You know, we say 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers were killed and a million North Vietnamese soldiers and Viet Cong guerrillas, and several million civilians and 58,000 Americans. And these are just abstractions. And what we try to do in the film is to pick a few of those stories and tell them. And when you're thinking about how to make meaning out of loss and tragedy, part of it is to keep the memories alive, I think, to not be afraid to talk about your uncle with your family and for everyone who's lost someone. These, to keep them alive by telling their stories is incredibly important and empowering in some ways. And in the film, we have testimony of a Vietnamese, a South Vietnamese, Vietnamese-American who lost a brother also in 72 during the Easter Offensive.
0: When his plane was shut down, and later on, they weren't able to recover him, his body, so he disappeared. He was missing in action. He was 26 years old. He has his full life ahead of him. Tuan never had a chance to live his life. And I can never overcome the feeling as to himself and his generation sacrificed their lives for what?
3: He said after having seen the whole film and knowing what his family went through, that he was ready to kind of close the chapter of the Vietnam War and look forward. And I think it was because of the ability to honor his brother by telling his story, by thinking about what that loss meant. And that's the only way out of this morass that we find ourselves in, which really is the human condition. More communication. Yeah. I'm going to... thank you for sharing the picture with us.
0: No, thank you for helping me. I'm going to pass this along to my dad when we watch the film together. The Vietnam War is airing on PBS and online, and for all you Vietnamese American listeners out there wondering whether you can see a version of this film in Vietnamese to watch with your parents, the answer is yes. Novick and Burns say the film is translated into Vietnamese, and you can watch that version online at pbs.org. After talking with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, I got to thinking, there's so much more to explore about the conflict in Vietnam. As the Pulitzer Prize winning author and scholar, Viet Thanh Nguyen, says so well, all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. Some former refugees have moved back to Vietnam and others, like my mom, visit often. But a good number remain bitter and won't set foot in Vietnam while it remains in communist hands. And while America pulled out of Vietnam a long time ago, some part of that place and that war remains within many of us. If you get a chance to see the documentary, we'd like to hear from you. Share your thoughts with us by emailing secondwave at kuow.org or by visiting KUOW's Facebook page. I'm Ton Tan and thanks for listening to Second Wave, an American story that begins in Vietnam. Second Wave is a production of KUOW in Seattle and PRX. Our producers are Andy Hurst and Caroline Chamberlain. Jim Gates is our editor. Support for Second Wave comes from Fisher Plumbing family of companies committed to their communities for over 40 years by supporting youth sports programs, charities for the disadvantaged, and water conservation. Fisher Plumbing offers plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and router services. More at fisherplumbing.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R plumbing.com.